130th Psalm this morning. We're continuing to work our way through the Psalter, selected Psalms. We'll be completing this study later this summer. We're in Psalm 130 this morning. This is again one of the 15 Psalms of Ascent that the Jews used, kind of the hymn book. They sang these 15 Psalms from Psalm 120 through 134 on their annual trips to Jerusalem to celebrate the three feasts to which they were attend. This is one of them. Psalm 130. This is God's Word. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for a time with your people on your day to study your word. And we treasure these times together. We look forward to them. We pray your blessing now upon uh, this particular focus, upon this particular psalm, and pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, illumine us to be able to see it, to understand it, to grasp it, and to apply it to our hearts as the Lord Jesus becomes more and more clear to us. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. We all know that some of the sweetest words you can hear are the words, I love you. Those words usually tug at the heart. They are usually full of emotion. However, just as sweet to hear are the words, I forgive you. When you've done something to offend someone or to hurt their feelings or to damage their reputation, one of the sweetest things in life is to know that they have forgiven you for what you have said or what you have done. As one who has offended more than his share of people over the years, I've come to appreciate the wonder and the marvel and the sweetness of forgiveness. No human relationship can extend through any period of time without a significant amount of forgiveness. No friendship can last very long unless both friends in that relationship are willing to forgive what the other says or does amiss against them. No marriage can last long unless both partners in that marriage are willing to freely and openly forgive things that never should have been said, never should have been done. No church can exist peacefully 
for any length of time unless there is within the members of that congregation a willingness to forgive the sins that one person commits against another. Yes, some of the sweetest words you will ever hear are the words, I forgive you. But even sweeter than hearing those words from your spouse or from your parents or from your children or from your friends is hearing those words from the voice of God. Oh, how sweet it is to hear God say, I forgive you. There is no greater comfort, no greater assurance, no greater peace than knowing that God has forgiven you. You know, many times we live under a burden of guilt. We know that we have sinned. We haven't experienced the fullness of God's forgiveness for that sin. We know we've transgressed God's law. We've fallen far short of the mark. And yet we haven't fully appropriated the forgiveness that God has for us in Christ. It's though we are enveloped in this kind of cloud of darkness. And the light has disappeared from your life. But when you come to God broken by your sin and in confession of your sin, it's, it's as though the light is turned back on. It's as though the sun is rising and the darkness of the night is being dissipated. The darkness of your soul fades away as God says to you, I forgive you. It's the wonder of forgiveness that we find described for us in Psalm 130. Not only is this one of the 15 Psalms of Ascent, it's also one of the seven what we call penitential Psalms in the Psalter. The Jews used this Psalm to confess their sins to God and to ask for God's forgiveness as they made their way to Jerusalem to attend these three annual feasts they were to attend. Now this is a true gospel psalm. Because in it we find one of the clearest Old Testament descriptions of the way of salvation and the way to be right with God. I want you to see four things from this psalm. First, I want you to see that the writer of this psalm, when he wrote it, was in the depths of despair. It begins by saying in verses 1 and 2, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. That Hebrew word for depths there refers specifically to being caught in dangerous or deep waters. It, that, of course, is a powerful image, isn't it? I'm sure most of us have had the experience of being underwater just a little bit too long. Or not sure as we come to the surface that we'll quite make it before we run out of breath. It's a, it's a powerful image, isn't it? He's in the depths. The same kind of imagery is found in Psalm 69, if you'll... Flip back over to Psalm 69 for just a moment. In verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says this. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. 
I have sunk in deep mire, there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying, my throat is parched, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. This reference there, of course, is not to literal water or to a literal flood, but to the feeling of despair when we are overwhelmed by our troubles, our circumstances, and our situation. Back in Psalm 130, the tense of the verb cry, where he says, I have cried to you, O Lord, indicates that this man has been crying for some time. He's been crying in the past. He continues to cry. It's an ongoing situation. He's almost to the end of himself. And that's why he makes this rather desperate cry to God for help. What was this man's situation that led him to make this kind of fervent cry to God for help? It wasn't just life's troubles. That was, that was what was described in Psalm 69 where David actually wrote Psalm 69 and he's describing how he's afraid of his enemies, how his enemies are pursuing him and they're coming upon him with such a torrent, it's like a flood and he's, he's frightened for his life and he, he cries out to God for help. That's not the situation here in Psalm 130. What troubles the psalmist here is his sin. That's the context all the way through this psalm because he mentions iniquities twice. He refers both to forgiveness and to redemption, both words, powerful words that deal with sin. And so he's crying out to God under the weight and the waves of his sin. It's from the depths of the awareness of his sin that he makes this plea to God. Ah, sin. We don't like to talk about that much, do we? Our problem today is that we have a decreasing awareness of the reality of our own sin. And the culture in which we live helps take that awareness of our sin away. After all, we can come up with an excuse for all our misdeeds, can't we? You know, we are in a, we're in a blaming culture where we're just in the habit of blaming someone else or something else for everything that we have done wrong. You know, it's the way I was raised. And so it's my parents' fault. Or it's the influence of the society in which I live, so it's the culture's fault. It's because of the education I received or I didn't receive. And so it was the school's fault. You don't know what it is to live with my spouse. It must be her fault. You know, it's interesting to me today, a lot of people don't like the president. Say, it must be his fault. No, it isn't. It's your fault. It's your sin. Back in the day, comedian Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You chose to do it. You committed that transgression. 
you crossed that boundary. It's because of who you are and because of what you have done. Folks, we need to realize the reality of our sin, not his sin, not her sin, but my sin. You will never deal with your real sin problem until you admit you have it. And you realize that you are a sinner. I will never deal with my sin, my sin problem, until I come to grips with it and know that I have sinned and transgressed against the Lord. And that's where this psalmist is. He's in the depths because of the reality of his sin. That's why he makes this impassioned plea to God. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. So the first thing we see is this man's in the depths of despair because of his sin. But second, I want you to see the reality of forgiveness. The forgiveness of sin. This man knew he was in the depths of despair, but he also knew that God was his only way out of this sin problem in which he found himself. Now, verse 3 gives us a rather stark reality about God's relationship to our sin. It says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Of course, the answer is, no one could. If all we had were black marks that God was putting against our name every time we committed sin, if God was keeping count, if God was marking iniquities, then no one could stand before God. He is too holy even to look upon sin, the Bible tells us. He turns his face away in disgust from it. He's too holy even to look upon sin, much less to have a relationship with a sinner like me or a sinner like you. Again, this is where the church today needs a serious reality check. We, we take sin far too lightly. And what you need to understand is that your view of the gravity or the seriousness of sin is in direct proportion to your understanding of the holiness of God. My, how we have dumbed God down today. As we've dumbed God down, we have decreased the weight and the guilt of sin. But when you see how holy and pure God is, you begin to see how great and evil your sin is. You know, we want what we want when we want it. And so we tend to think today that God's more concerned about my happiness than He is about my holiness. We're more concerned about God being our friend and our companion. You know, He walks with me and talks with me. Instead of God being the King and the Lord of our lives. What is the psalmist saying here in verse 3? Folks, he's saying that if God's keeping count, you and I are in deep trouble. The EE Evangelism Explosion presentation of the gospel has an illustration that shows the reality of that clearly. 
The illustration is called Three Sins a Day. And, and it goes like this. Suppose I just sinned three, sin, three times a day. Now you'd think I was a pretty good guy, wouldn't you? I can assure you I sin way more than three times a day. When I take into thought my sins of what I think, say, and do, thought, word, and deed, well, I can enter sins not just of commission when I do that's wrong, but sins of omission. Not doing things that I ought to do. Yes, I sin way more than three times a day, but let's give me a break. Let's say the three is all I sin. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But you know, those three sins a day add up. There are 365 days in the year. That means just with three sins a day, that's over a thousand sins a year. I just turned 64. That'd be over 64,000 sins, just at a minimum of three sins a day. What judge is going to let anyone off if I came with 64,000 traffic tickets. Begin to see the weight. Begin to see the weight. If God should mark iniquities, who could stand? However, the good news is that the psalmist doesn't stop there. He says in verse 4, which begins again with that profound theological word, but there's a great contrast between verse 3 and verse 4. He says, If God should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But, but, there is forgiveness with you. That, folks, is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? God is ready to forgive. God is a forgiving God. God is eager to forgive. He wants to forgive. He delights in forgiveness. He wants to forgive. But the forgiveness of God is not to be taken lightly. And it's not to be taken lightly because it came at a very high cost. It cost him his son. You see, that's the gospel, isn't it? God didn't just ignore your sin and act like it didn't happen. He didn't excuse your sin and conclude it really wasn't your fault after all. He didn't hide your sin or sweep it under the rug so we just wouldn't know it was there. No, because God is holy and because God is just, God had to deal with your sin and my sin in a just and a holy way. And therefore he took your sin and he laid it upon his son. You see, the cross is all about Jesus dying for sin, not for his own sin because he had none. But dying for the sin of his people, dying for your sin and dying for mine. You see, your sin had to be punished. Your debt had to be paid. The justice required by the law of God for your sin had to be justified. 
and satisfied. And so God sent Jesus, His Son, to the cross to take your punishment, to pay your debt, to satisfy His justice on your account. Folks, that's the only way out of this sense of despair that this psalmist expresses in verse 1. We can't buy our way out. We can't work our way out. We can't earn our way out. We can only look to God's grace and to His forgiveness. To remember as verse 4 says, there is forgiveness with you. And notice the response we're to have when we realize that God is a God of forgiveness. It says in the verse 4 that we are to fear Him. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now fear again is a, a sense of awe and reverence before God. And this, this, this amazing fact that, that God in His grace forgives and blots out your sin based on His mercy is such an amazing thing. It ought to cause you to step back in awe and wonder of a God who could forgive you and save you in that way. Not require anything of you, but put all of your sin upon His Son so that by His amazing grace, He can then call you to Himself, declare you forgiven, embrace you into His family, and call you His child. If that doesn't make you fear God, nothing will. What an amazing God He is who can set aside His justice upon His own Son to grant you the forgiveness that you can have no other way. There is forgiveness with Him that He may be feared. And then third, I want you to see the hope of the believer. That hope is clearly defined in verses 5 and 6. There's such a stark contrast, really, from what we find in verse 1 about Him crying out of the depths of despair to verse 5 and 6 where he is hoping and waiting. He says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. And in his word do I hope, he goes on then in verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. Those two verses are all about watching and waiting. Watching and waiting. But he's not waiting for forgiveness. He's already received that. He's waiting for the Lord. That's what it says. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And again in verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord. He's waiting for this restoration of this fellowship that he had with God before his sin. He's waiting for this intimate fellowship with God that comes through forgiveness. And notice that he's waiting with great confidence. He says, in his word do I hope. Don't miss it. Here's, here's an Old Testament psalmist saying to God, in your word I hope. It's in your word I find confidence. It's in your word I find strength. You see, even the Old Testament taught that God 
forgives our sin. He blots out all our iniquity, washes away our transgression. Even the Old Testament talks about how God restores us to the joy of our salvation through the forgiveness that he gives to us. And that's what the psalmist is waiting for here. That's what he's hoping for. And he's confident that it will come. So confident, in fact, he says in verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. The watchmen were those who kept watch during the night. There were usually four shifts during the night, four three-hour shifts. They would take turns. He's referring here to the last shift from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. What was that last shift doing? What was that last watchman doing? He was waiting for the morning, waiting for the sunrise. And he waited for it with confidence because he knew it would come. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord with more confidence than that watchman had for the rising of the sun. You see, we know God will restore us. We know God will return us to the joy of our salvation. We know that God will give us, again, sweet fellowship with himself through the forgiveness he gives to us. And so when the forgiveness is granted, we look for, we wait for, we anticipate this renewed, intimate fellowship with God. And then fourth, I want you to see the need for redemption. The need for redemption. Verses 7 and 8 kind of summarize the whole psalm or draw a conclusion from it. Here we find him exhorting all Israel to hope in the Lord. We find the same kind of grace or forgiveness that he's experienced. He says in verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness. So far the focus has been on himself, but now he turns to those around him, to all Israel, and says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. hope. We talk about hope a lot because hope is so important in the Bible, isn't it? We've talked before about how biblical hope is so different from the hope that you and I usually think about. You know, for us, hope is kind of a wish or a desire or something want to happen. But biblical hope is something sure. It's something certain. Biblical hope is not something that we want to happen. It's something that we know will happen. It's not just desire that God will save us, but it's the assurance that he will. And notice that assurance, again, is based on the character of God. Why does he tell Israel to hope in the Lord? It's because the Lord is full of loving kindness. That loving kindness is God's unfailing love. Any hope you have of Forgiveness, any hope you have of salvation, any hope you have of heaven, doesn't depend on anything in yourself, about yourself, of yourself. It depends only upon the loving kindness of God. Oh, Israel, he says, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness. You see, our assurance of forgiveness and our assurance of salvation depend on our knowledge of God. 
The more you know who God is and what God is like, the more confidence you'll have in your relationship with Him. The more you know that God is a God of forgiveness, a God of loving kindness, as we find here, the more you will rely completely upon Him. But that's not all. Verse 7 goes on to say, And with Him is abundant redemption. Redemption. It's one of those words you want to circle in your Bible. Redemption is such a beautiful word. It means to set someone free by the paying of a price. And that word meant something to Israel. They knew what it was to be redeemed. That was what they celebrated every spring when they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. You see, Passover celebrated God's redemption that He gave them from their bondage in Egypt. When God set them free from their slavery to Pharaoh and his tyranny. God redeemed them. He set them free. But there was a price that had to be paid. For the Israelites, that price was the life of a lamb that had to be slain, whose blood had to be smeared on the doorpost of their house. There was no other price of redemption. There was nothing else that could set them free. Only when they were covered by the blood would the death angel see it pass over their house and spare them. And the same is true with us. It's only through the blood of the Lamb that we can be assured of redemption. It's only as we are covered with the blood of Jesus that we can be set free from our bondage to sin and death. You see, just as the death angel passed through Egypt and saw the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites, so God passes over you and sees the blood of His Son covering your sin. And on that basis, you are redeemed. There's an old hymn that says, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. That's the message of this song, folks. We are redeemed from our sin by the mercy and loving kindness of God, by the blood of the Lamb who died on the cross for us. Our certain hope is in the forgiveness of God and the fact that He doesn't keep count of our transgressions. And it is this truth that enables us to cry out to the Lord from the depths of our despair and know He will hear our voice. His ears will be attentive to the voice of our supplications and that there is forgiveness with Him. As Romans says, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The psalm ends with a note of hope for the future. Verse 8 says, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That, of course, was a prophecy. A prophecy, a prophecy of the Messiah who would come and redeem the true Israel, the people of God. That great hope of the one who would come and set them free was a source of inspiration, comfort, 
in anticipation to the Jews. And folks, that same hope is laid out for us as we look for the same Savior. We don't look for the one who will come, but the one who has come. We don't look for his first coming. We look for his second coming. We look forward to his return when he will come again and receive us to himself. That where he is, there we may be also. Maybe you're in the depths this morning. Maybe for some of you, the weight and the guilt of your sin is almost more than you can bear. The flood and the waves of your sin are just kind of lapping over your soul. You're almost without hope. Folks, this psalm tells us there is always hope. And there's hope because of the loving kindness of God. Because God is a forgiving God. And all you must do is come to Him. Confess your sin to Him. Depend upon Him and Him alone. And He will, I promise, He will forgive you. Wait for Him and He will return. And grant you sweet fellowship with Him again. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its power and for its conviction. We thank you for its beauty and its grace. And I pray that today we might find all of it to be a reality in our hearts and lives as we look again to the wonder of the cross and the crucified Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.